The following resource is brought to you by Real Life Community Church in Richmond, Kentucky. We hope you're both challenged and encouraged by this message from Pastor Chris May. Part six of our series on the life of Joseph. There are, uh, as you know, many practical takeaways from this story. I mean, just really practical things that we can apply to our lives. And there's going to be continue to be some of these truths that we can just immediately apply to our lives. But I, I want us to learn from those, but I don't want us to miss the overarching theme that we see in this text. Uh, and I'm talking about uh, the divine providence of God. It's an important doctrine that we see throughout Scripture. And here's what we mean by that. Uh, as you know, providence has to do with God's sovereignty. How many believe that God is indeed sovereign? He's not sitting in heaven somewhere, wringing his hands, wondering what he's going to do. No, he is a sovereign God. And it means that in his great wisdom and love, that the Lord oversees all things in the universe to bring about his sovereign will and his ultimate purposes. All right? And that those things, God's ultimate plans and purposes will, they shall come to pass. There's nothing we can do to thwart those um, those plans. As a matter of fact, in week one of this series, we saw that God is even bigger than our bad decisions. Are you grateful for that? He's even greater and bigger than our sin. Where, sins abound, where sin abounds, grace all the more, right? God works in two main ways. This is what we think about when we think of divine providence. On one hand, God works very directly, all right? So this would be, uh, we, we would refer to these kind of workings as miracles. We call this divine intervention. How many believe God still performs miracles today? Amen. He is a miracle working God. It was so interesting. I was, um, I did uh, Chad and Kelly's wedding this past weekend. And I got to meet Chad's grandfather, who's one of the, just the kindest uh, men that I've ever met. He was so incredible. And Chad had told me a lot about him and, I got to talking to him, and it's 30 minutes before the wedding, and, and he and his wife began speaking to me, and they said, well, sometime when you have time, we'd like to share a story with you that's, and I, you know how some people just draw you in, and you're like, you want to hear what they have to say? That's how it was with this man, and I, I told him, I said, hey, I know we've got a wedding coming up. I said, share with me what's on your heart, and he said to me, he said, well, I was, uh, I, I was having some pain and some issues, and he said, I went to the doctor been, I think, a year ago or something, and he said, I went to the doctor, and they, they told me that I had a brain tumor. He said, I just didn't know what to do with that. He said, I was making plans. He said, I was depressed. I was making plans for the end of my life. He said, I'm sitting in the car one day in a, in a par parking lot of a supermarket, and he said, I'm waiting on my wife, and he says, when, when, while she's in the store, she's, he said, a man just approaches. He's walking by my car, and he says, he looks at me in the eye, and we make eye contact, and he said, starts approaching my car. He said, I just rolled down my window a little bit, and he, he says, that the man says to him, hey, you just received really bad news from the doctor. I want you to know something. And he said, would you mind to open the door? And the guy just felt compelled. That, you know, you don't, you don't do that in this day and age, but he just felt compelled. This is of the Lord. He opens the door, and the guy says, listen, here's what's happened to you. I want you to know God has sent me here you that 
you're going to be all right. That's it. And he said, can I just pray for you right now? And he just prays his prayer. The guy didn't, never seen this guy in his life before. And the guy just walks away. Goes back to the doctor to find out. You probably can tell the end of the story that everything was completely gone. He didn't ask this guy for prayer. He didn't say what was, the guy just was sent by the Lord to show him this. I mean, just incredible. Friends, that's divine intervention. And that stuff still happens today. I told you a few weeks ago, I wouldn't be standing here if it were not for God's miraculous divine intervention. God still moves that way, okay? When God, these are acts like in the Bible that we see, God parting the Red Sea, that's divine intervention. That's direct intervention, I should say. Um, That's the the miraculous. Uh, God opening a barren womb, that's that's divine intervention, direct intervention. We could go on and on, opening blind eyes, right? Instantaneous healings. So God still does work in those ways, but often, most often I would say, God works in another way. He works more indirectly, more subtly, and this is what we call God's divine providence. He's, in a sense, working behind the scenes, even when we don't understand, even we can't perceive Him. When we think our lives are mass chaos, we think the world is chaos and that, you know, the Lord you know, has somehow lost control. Oh, he's in control. This is all a setup to bring about his ultimate plans and will. That's what we mean by divine providence. And this is the reality. This, this doctrine is the reality of Romans 8.28, which I quote often, and I say that, I use that verse often because it's a life verse for me. I mean, if you believe this verse, and I hope you do, then you can stand and... and that comes your way. Let me read it to you. And we know, okay, this, in other words, Paul's, uh, he's writing to the Romans here and he's saying, we know, there's no uncertainty here. We know that for those who love God, this is not for everybody, this is for those who love God. Anybody love the Lord tonight? Those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. These are the saved, the elect, those those who trust in Christ, those who love God. The Bible says that all things, and when the, um, if you look up the Greek, the word all here, guess what it means? All, it's really crazy, right? You guys are scholars, you didn't even know it. So it means all. All things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. In other words, his purposes are going to come to pass, which means that the good, the bad, and the ugly, what we perceive as the good, the bad, and the ugly, all work together for good. So here's what I want you to do. Think about the last six months of your life. Some of you are frowning, some of you are smiling, right? (laughs) Think about the last six months of your life. Can I tell you that every, listen, every situation that you went through, God will use for your good. Every situation. He's got a reason behind it. You may not understand it. You may never know this side of eternity. And in the, in the life to come, you won't care. Right? Uh, we always say we're going to ask God question X, Y, and Z. You're not going to ask him anything. Are you kidding me? You're going to be so in awe by his presence. All things work together for good. So this is 
to believe this verse means that we really can do all things without complaining and grumbling as the scripture compels us to do. It means we can, as Paul says, rejoice at all times, in all situations, in all things. That doesn't mean you have to be chipper all the time, but in the sense, here, here's, this is just so relieving, this is so freeing to me. You don't have to sit around and worry um, because of some uncertainty. Oh, what's going to happen? What's, no, listen, whatever happens, God's going to use it for ultimate good. That doesn't mean it's always pleasant. Can I get an amen? <laughs> but it's for your good. So it's really interesting in the life of Joseph that he seems to, seems to hang on to this promise. And I know Romans hadn't been written yet in Joseph's time, but he seems to understand this about God. Am I getting a ring? Take that down just a little bit, bud. Joseph seems to have confidence. I mean, we don't know every thought, every word that he spoke, but you don't get the sense that he ever doubted God's plan for his life, even though he went through the worst of situations. He just trusts. He just, and listen, I, I've said this before. When you are put under pressure, it's kind of like a pressure cooker, right? You're putting the pressure cooker, right? Whatever's inside is coming out. I mean, when the pressure is applied, it's like a tube of toothpaste. We're kind of like spiritual tubes of toothpaste, right? When the pressure is put on, whatever's in the tube's coming out, right? And so whatever's, listen, we can fake spirituality. We can fake a trust in God when things are well. But when the pressure's applied and that, and, and that toothpaste is squeezed, right? What happens? The real you, the real me comes out. It's easy to, to, to praise God and to trust God in the good times. But in the bad circumstances, do you still believe all things are working together for our good and for his glory? So that being said, let's look again at the doctrine of God's sovereignty um, in Genesis 42 is where we're at. Verse 1, when Jacob learned that there was grain for sale in Egypt, he said to his sons, why do you look to one another? And he said, Behold, I've heard that there is grain for sale in Egypt. Go down and buy grain for us there that we may live and not die. So ten of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt. But Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, with his brothers, for he feared that harm may happen to him. Thus the sons of Israel came to buy among the others who came, for the famine was in the land of Canaan. Verse 6, now Joseph was governor over the land. He was the one who sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed themselves before him with their faces to the ground. Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them, but he treated them like strangers and spoke roughly to them. Where do you come from, he said. And they said, from the land of Canaan to buy food. And Joseph recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. And Joseph remembered the dreams that he had dreamed of them. Just, just let that verse sink in for a moment. And Joseph remembered the dreams that he had dreamed of them. 
Let's go back for just a moment. Remember, at age 17, God gave Joseph this incredible dream. And in that dream, he saw symbolism to, to essentially show that his brothers and even his parents would one day bow down before him, that he was going to have some measure of authority over them. And you might remember being a little bit arrogant, probably at 17 years old. He gets really excited and he, he shared that dream with his brothers who already hated him because his father already favored him. That's not a smart, wise thing to do, all right? So they grow to despise him even more, the brothers. They strip him, remember, of his coat of many colors. They throw him into a pit, sell him into slavery. While doing this, they mark, that, or excuse me, they mock him regarding his dreams. Here comes the dreamer, right? There goes the dreamer as they see him being shipped off into slavery. Now remember, this is a God-given dream. Right? Joseph didn't conjure up his own dream. This is a God-given dream. Yet the brothers think we've squelched that dream. We've, we've squashed it. We've, we, we have put an end to this dream. We'll see what becomes of the dream. But remember, let man say what they want. Let them do what they will. If God be for us, who can be against us? If God puts something in our hearts, nothing can thwart the plans of God. No one can thwart the plans, the ultimate plans and purposes of God. So now, verse 6. Joseph was the governor over the land. He was, he was in charge of everything and seeing that the food is di distributed properly. He was the one who sold to the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came, and watch this, and bowed themselves before him with their faces to the ground. The dream, what is this? The dream is coming to pass. How? How does this happen? Did Joseph have to manipulate and do all these things? No, this is the hand of God's divine providence. Think of this. After positioning Joseph to what is essentially the prime minister of Egypt, God causes there to be seven years of plenty followed by seven years of famine. Yes, God causes it. Then God gives Joseph the wisdom to put food back and grain back in, in reserve during the seven years of abundance so that the people might be sustained for the seven years of famine. And when the famine comes, it impacts not just Egypt, but all the surrounding communities, including the land of Canaan where Joseph's family resides. And this is where we pick up today. So Joseph is in charge of overseeing and, and, and buying and selling the food that is in Egypt. Jacob, who is Joseph's father, he gets news that grain is available in Egypt. This is great news, but he has no idea, remember, that Joseph is there. He thinks Joseph is long gone. Twenty years have passed since Joseph's brothers have seen him last. And he recognizes them, but they don't recognize him. He was 17. 17 when he, let, when, when he had the dream, right? Many, many years have gone by. 
They don't recognize him. They're not looking for some prime minister of Egypt. No, they don't even know if he's alive. And here they are without even knowing it at the mercy, bowing down at the feet of Joseph. God's sovereign will is coming to pass. Let me just give you a little bit of application here. Don't get so worked up about what's going on in the world around us, the political agenda from either side. Don't get so worked up about people who mock you for your faith. Don't get so worked up for people who doubt the God-given dreams that you have. Take comfort in the fact that godless people cannot stop the sovereign will of God. No matter who gets elected to office, no matter um, what people, what, who, who tries to move into whatever position in the city or state or federal government or at your job or whatever, though the vision may tarry, okay, and, and it does tarry normally, it will come to pass. And so trust and rest, my friends, in the sovereignty of God. God has got a plan. Amen? So Joseph's trust here in God's sovereignty has a direct impact. Here's what I want you to see. It has a direct impact on the way in which he responds to his brothers. We're going to see this over the next couple of weeks. And here's what I want you to understand. I'm studying right now uh, again. I've, I've gone through this book, it seems like, over and over and over. Wayne Grudem's Systematic Theology book. It's a pretty staple um, book in colleges, Bible colleges, seminaries. And uh, it's, it's tremendous. And one of the things I was just reading today, um, the idea is this, that if your doctrine, your theology, your, your, the doctrines that you believe, the theology that you study... If it doesn't move you to action, it really doesn't do any good. Just knowing good doctrine is, is, not, is not the end. It's a means to an end. The, the end being that our affections ought to be raised for God, our commitment to Him ought to be um, more disciplined than ever. Like if, if your doctrine doesn't change you, your doctrine is useless, right? And so... When we think about the doctrine of divine providence, we think about God's sovereignty. If that doesn't impact the way we live and the way we think, then what good is it to have the knowledge? Joseph's trust in the sovereignty of God moves him to something incredible. And I want you to see this. It moves him to radical forgiveness. Radical forgiveness. Look at verse 12 with me of chapter 42. He says to his brothers, No, it is the nakedness of the land that you have come to see. He's messing with them. <laughs> and they said, We, your servants, are 12 brothers, the sons of one man in the land of Canaan. And behold, the youngest is this day with our father, and one is no more. <laughs> Isn't this hilarious? But Joseph said to them, it is as I said to you, you are spies. Hey, he's messing with them. This is so cool. I don't feel so bad for pranking people, all right? I'm just saying. I think it's a godly thing to do. 
He says, by this you shall be tested. By the life of Pharaoh, you shall not go from this place unless your youngest brother comes here. Send one of you and let him bring your brother while you remain confined that your words may be tested whether there is truth in you or else by the life of Pharaoh, surely you are spies. And he put them all together in custody for three days. Verse 18, on the third day, Joseph said to them, do this and you will live for I fear God. Why does Joseph not retaliate? You may think this is retaliation. It's not. I'll show this to you. But why does he not retaliate? Because he fears the Lord. He trusts the Lord. He says, if you are honest men, let one of your brothers remain confined where you are in custody. And let the rest go and carry grain for the famine of your households. And bring our, your youngest brother to me so your words will be verified and you shall not die. And they did so. And then one said to another, in truth, we are guilty concerning our brother. In that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us and we did not listen. This is why distress has come upon us. And Reuben answered to them. He said, did I not tell you not to sin against the boy? But you did not listen. That's kind of the blame game, huh? So now there comes a reckoning for his blood. They did not know that Joseph understood them, for there was an interpreter between them. Now watch Joseph's response here. This is incredible. Then he turned away, verse 24, he turned away from them and wept. His heart's not bitter, folks. This is incredible to me. And he returned to them. Watch what he does. He returned to them and he spoke to them and he took Simeon from them and he bound him before their eyes and Joseph gave orders, watch this, to fill their bags with grain and to replace every man's money in his sack and to give them provisions for the journey. This was done for them. This is radical grace, forgiveness, and generosity to the ones who cursed him. This is unreal. Joseph forgives his brothers. He blesses them by filling their bags with grain. He gives them their money back. And here's what I want you to see. When you trust God's sovereignty, when I trust God's sovereignty, there is no reason for us to be bitter because we know that nothing happens Nothing happens that can thwart the promises of God. And all things are working together. So if you do something to me that I don't particularly like, how can I be mad at you if it's working for my good somehow in some way? How can I hold a grudge against you if I know that God means some good to come out of this? This takes radical faith. Luke 6, 27, Jesus says, I say to you, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. How are you doing with this? Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. To one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. For the one who takes, from your cloak, takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you, and the one who takes your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. He's saying, oh, forgive. 
radically forgive. I had a new Christian that just got saved in the last month come to me. And she says to me, Pastor, she says, I'm just having trouble forgiving somebody. How, how in the world am I supposed to forgive for this? And it was pretty substantial what's been done to her. And I said, let me just take you through the gospel again. What's just happened to you? And I, we talked through sin. We talked through the offenses that we've done towards God. And how we're guilty before the Lord, yet out of great mercy, great mercy. He has demonstrated such love for us and great forgiveness at the cost of his only begotten son. And how in the world, being forgiven for all of this, could we hold a grudge against anybody? Now, there is a difference between Forgiveness and reconciliation. All right? This is important, I think, to bring out. Forgiveness means to grant pardon. It is refusing to hold a grudge against anybody. But reconciliation involves building trust again. Forgiveness ought to be instantaneous. But reconciliation is a process. Reconciliation takes two people. Forgiveness takes one. I can forgive you um, whether you want to be forgiven or not. You can forgive me. If I, if I say I'm sorry, you can forgive me. If I don't say I'm sorry, you can forgive me. But reconciliation normally takes two people. And we see here that Joseph is not holding a grudge. He's not retaliating. He's not trying to get even. He messes with him a little bit. That's all right. But he offers forgiveness. However, he's not reconciled with them in Catch my emphasis on this word, yet. Reconciliation's coming. Out of wisdom, here's what he does. Here's what he's doing here. He gives them a test. He puts uh, Simeon in prison and he gives them the task, the brothers, the task of going home with the grain and returning with Benjamin. He doesn't yet trust his brothers He's, not, he's forgiven them, he's not holding a grudge, but there's not full trust there yet. That's okay, this is wisdom. I've used this example before, the difference between forgiveness and reconciliation. But let, let me use this illustration again. Let's just say that you have young children and you hire a babysitter, all right? And you give the babysitter some rules. You tell her, you say, listen, I don't want my children um, watching a, a lot of television, I don't want them eating um, sugar, sugary uh, foods. I want them to eat. I've got dinner prepared. That's what I want them to eat. They're young. I don't want them outside by themselves. I want them in bed at 8 o'clock. I don't want you to have any other company over. I want you to focus on my children, right? Let's say you and your spouse go out for a date night and you come back to find the babysitter on the couch with her boyfriend. And she's watching TV and you say, where are the kids? And she says, I think they're outside playing somewhere. And you look and the meal you fix them is still on the table, but the bags of jelly beans are emptied, right? And they're running around the yard like crazy people, you know, and, and all hyped up on sugar. Now, let me ask you, do you have to forgive the babysitter? Yes. 
But wisdom would say, maybe don't hire her next time, right? That, that would take re rebuilding a trust, okay? So this is where Joseph is at. There's an uh, employer that I worked for several years ago who treated me horribly. He was a pain to work for, and uh, for two years of my life, it was, it was misery. I have forgiven him. Honestly, I have. I'm trying to convince myself. No, I have. But if I were out of work tomorrow, he would not be top of my list to call for a job. Forgiveness is instantaneous. Reconciliation takes time. Okay, it takes two people. I've reached out to this man. He doesn't want to be reconciled. That's all right. Interesting, I just happened to look at his Facebook page the other day, and it said, uh, he, he quoted from Jesus' verse about um, being reconciled to your brother, but he doesn't want to be reconciled. So I can't do anything about it. Right? It takes two people. So be quick to forgive. If you're not quick to forgive, here's what will happen. You will become a bitter person, and it will affect your fellowship with God. You will not be able to worship when you see everybody else responding to the presence of God and you feel dry and spiritually stale and distant from God. Many times that's because of unforgiveness in the heart. It separates us, puts us out of fellowship with God. Now, the goal, hear me, forgiveness is important, right? But it doesn't stop there when it, when your conflict is with other Christians. Reconciliation is always the goal. And that ought to happen quickly amongst two Christians. Not instantaneous, I understand that, but it ought to happen quickly amongst two Christians. Let me give you a great verse, Matthew 5, 23. Somebody check me on that. I thought this was in chapter 18, but... Um, I just had Matthew 5, 23. Is this about offering your gift at the altar? I guess I have my Bible right here. I can do that too. That's it? Okay. Matthew 5, 23. If you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. Now watch this. First be, it doesn't say first forgive. He says first be reconciled to your brother and then offer your gift. If I may take a little bit of liberty here, let me put this in modern terms today. If you are in worship on Sunday morning and they're singing your favorite song, Waymaker, right? Whatever your song is. And you, got, you have your hands lifted and raised, and all of a sudden you remember, I'm at odds with my brother or sister in Christ. I think Jesus is saying, put your hands down. Put your crying. You're weeping emotionally. Go over to your brother. Go over to your sister. Make things right. And then come back with pureness of heart and worship me. Unity is so important to Jesus. It's absolutely important. A house divided cannot stand. When you have conflict with another brother or sister in this church, the answer is not to leave. 
because the way you leave here is the way you go into the next church. You'll never be fully effective if you go to another church without resolution here. We've had people do that. It's tragic. Absolutely tragic. Your, listen, what happened between you and this other person may not be mainly your fault. And I say mainly because most of us have a little bit of issue in every situation, uh, part in every situation. I always try to start with, Lord, what did I bring to the table here to, to help cause this? We need to run to those whom we have offended or who, to those who have offended us and be reconciled. Be reconciled. I mean, let's go back just a moment to Luke, the passage I, I just read in Luke. If we are to bless our enemies, if we're to literally pray for those who are intentionally against us, we're to bless them and not curse them. Those who curse us, and the word curse there is not who've cussed us out. It's cursed. It's, this is a major deal. If you're to bless people like this, how do you think Jesus expects you to treat somebody sitting on the pew next to you? How do you think I'm supposed to treat those many people who have offended me, who have hurt me, just like the many who have hurt you. It's not about us and our feelings. It's all about Jesus. And I'm trying, this is one of the things I want our church to understand. Life is not about us. You're a Christian, it's not about you. It's about Jesus. We have no right. We have no right to, to hang on to grudges. And we ought to do everything in our power to be reconciled reconciled to one another. And I would just challenge you tonight, don't, don't let this blow by you as just some theological teaching. Oh, you want, you want to grow spiritually? You want the presence of God to, to be upon you? You want to you grow um, in, in every area of your life? You want the favor of God to follow you everywhere you go? Be reconciled to your brothers and sisters in Christ and forgive Everybody, Christian or not, and be reconciled to every single brother or sister in Christ. Well, they've hurt me more than once, then forgive them more than once. Peter thought he was being super spiritual. Remember, Jesus, how many times should we forgive? Seven times? And what was Jesus' response? Seventy times seven, right? And he's not giving us an exact number because some of you are like, well, this person's, you know, you're, you're kind of calculating this out. No, this is... Let me ask you, how many times do you want God to forgive you? Do you want him to stop at a certain number? Do you want him to stop at seven times? And let me ask, when, when God forgives you, do you want him to forgive you but keep you on the outside still? Or do you want to be reconciled to him? See, Christ, Christ didn't just give us forgiveness. You understand that, right? Christ did not just die so that we could have forgiveness. He died so we could be reconciled to the Father, the Scripture says. Oh, forgiveness is great, but okay, maybe I won't, I won't go to hell now, but if that was it and I couldn't go to God in prayer and I couldn't walk with Him and talk with Him and, and, and understand the Word because I was still separated from Him, that would be torture. 
Oh, I'm grateful that Christ did not stop with forgiveness. Oh, he's reconciled me to the Father by blessing me while, while I was a yet or while I was yet a sinner. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us that we might become the righteousness of God, meaning that now we get his righteousness because when we couldn't help ourselves, when we were in rebellion to God, Christ gave his life. Talk about blessing those who curse him. We were rebels, enemies of God. You may not have thought of that. That's what the scripture teaches. We were enemies of God apart from Christ. And yet he died. He gave us life. He gave us reconciliation to the Father. And how can we offer anything less to other people? Let me just read this quote from John Piper. He says this, the greatest risk we face as a church in these days is not that we may lose an organ or that we may lose money or that we may lose members or that we may lose staff or that we may lose reputation. The greatest risk is that we may lose heaven because one way to lose heaven is to hold fast to an unforgiving spirit and prove that we have never been indwelt by the Spirit of Christ. The man or the woman who is forgiven of much forgives much. You know what you prove when you hold on to bitterness and unforgiveness, when that's the bend of your heart? You know what you prove? You've not received grace are there Christians who at times struggle with this oh absolutely this is why I preach the gospel to you every sermon the gospel is not just for non-believers <laughs> to get them saved oh it's gloriously that Romans chapter 10 this is why Paul says that I preach Christ and him crucified. It's not that Paul didn't say anything else, but everything pointed to Jesus and him crucified. The gospel, the death, burial, resurrection of Christ. That's the gospel. Everything points to that. Meaning that we ought to preach the gospel to ourselves every day. You struggle with unforgiveness? Preach the gospel to yourself every single day. Remember what you've been forgiven for. And how in the world could you hold on to the grudge? Go, go read the parable uh, in the Bible about um, where Jesus talks about the unforgiving uh, servant who was forgiven of much and then he demanded payment for nickels on the, or pennies on the dollar from his servant. Just go read that. And let that sink in what Jesus is saying. And the whole point of the parable is this. You don't forgive, you do not get forgiveness. I don't know if there's a clearer teaching in, in, in the Gospels. I really don't. I mean, he says it. It's, it's even when, uh, when the Lord's Prayer, like he doesn't expound on anything except forgive us our debts as we forgive those who have sinned against us, right? And then he expounds on that part. 
For if we don't forgive, we don't get forgiveness. Remarkable. So please, please, please take this to heart. If you have ought with somebody in this church or anybody, I don't care where they're at, do all that you can to be reconciled. Preach the gospel to yourself. If we trust in God's sovereignty, we should have no problem with this. So I would, I would compel you, I would, I would ask you, trust the Lord radically. If you love God, you're called according to His purpose, which means you're a Christian. Trust Him. You, you won't be able to be mad at anybody. You just can't because God's using it. this. Whatever your this is, He's using this for your good and His glory. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to know more about how you can have a relationship with Jesus Christ, or if you have questions about our church, you can email us at info at myrealchurch.org. Real Life Community Church is located at 335 Glendon Avenue in Richmond, Kentucky. We invite you to join us for worship Sunday at 1045 a.m. or Wednesday at 7 p.m. Visit us online at myrealchurch.org.